Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobhana Xavier, and I hope you're doing well and staying safe wherever you are. And thanks so much for joining us today. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Alora Shahabuddin, who is a professor of transnational Asian studies and a core faculty at the Center for the Study of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Rice University to discuss her new book, Sisters in the Mirror, A History of Muslim Women and the Global Politics of Feminism, which is published by the University of California Press in 2021. This book traces the genealogy of the representation of Muslim women, and especially Bengali women, from the colonial context to the contemporary moment. Weaving a rich analysis from diverse historical archives, the study highlights how notions of feminism did not develop in isolation, especially between the Anglo-Western world and Muslim nations, but rather developed in tandem as a result of entangled political realities, such as colonialism, the unfolding of partition, post-partition, and the war on terror. Sisters in the Mirror then tells a feminist story about how changing global and local power disparities between Europeans and, and Bengalis, between Muslims and non-Muslims, between Muslim feminists and Western feminists, have shaped ideas about change in women's lives and also the resistance and activism that has developed as a result. In the post-colonial contemporary reality, which contains further economic and social imbalances, Muslim advocates for women's rights are forced to define their agendas, stories, and voices in the shadow of Western imperial and economic power. The powerful stories highlighted in this book capture the complex terrain in which justice and equality are fought for, and also highlights that no one has a monopoly over these ideas. This book will be an incredible interest and value to those who think and write on South Asia, feminism, and gender, especially those who are interested in Islamic and Muslim feminism. In our conversation today, Dr. Shahabuddin and I spoke about the development of this particular project of love, the methodological process of writing this book, and some of the examples that emerge in this text, such as of Bengali women activists like Begum Rokhaya Hussain, and the continued obsession that we note um, in writings and popular media discourses around polygamy, FGM, and Purda. And so without any hesitation. Here is my conversation with Dr. Alora Shahabuddin about Sisters in the Mirror, a history of Muslim women and the global politics of feminism. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to talk about your new book, Sisters in the Mirror, a history of Muslim women and the global politics of feminism. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you as well. So we have a tradition on the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast to start with a little bit 
of your own, you know, autobiographical story or narrative and what brought you to this moment. So can you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey and perhaps what led to the writing of this particular book? Um, yes, of course. Thank you. Um, it's always good to reflect on that. Um, well, I guess looking back, I've always been interested in women's activism and agency, uh, particularly in South Asia and specifically in Bangladesh. Um, my family's from there, but uh, growing up, um, I only spent four years there, you know, when I was a school kid because of my dad's job. We were mostly in the Middle East and Europe. And when I started doing research on Bangladesh, I realized, hey, this is a way for me to get to know the country and everything without the family. But of course, a lot of family and family friends help. But I was really happy to be able to do research on Bangladesh. So that's been great. So um, so as I said, looking back, I see how I've constantly gone back to similar questions and topics for my undergrad senior thesis. I focused on uh, rural women, borrowers of Grameen Bank, the microcredit organization that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. And then for my dissertation and the book that emerged from it, I looked at how rural Bangladeshi women negotiated the formal political system, different legal institutions, and the overtures of different NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations. This new book um, allowed me to broaden the scope of these long-standing interests in agency and activism um, across space and time. So basically in this book, I look into the deeper history of South Asian Muslim women's activism and the complex network of international connections forged by these activists. So deeper in time and sort of broader in, in space. Um, it is uh, methodologically quite different um, from my previous work because it draws primarily on written texts. While my previous work had been more had been about contemporary Bangladesh, so I, you know, I'd done ethnography and even surveys. So it was much more, you know, talking to the women I was interested in. So. As a result, of course, it means that I focus more on elite women, right? Because they're the ones who uh, had access to education everywhere in the world. I mean, it's not a Bengali story, um, but uh, and the and they're the ones who had the ability to leave behind their own writing. And uh, you know, we can talk about methodology more later. But I also want to tell you why I wrote this book when I did, um, why this became a book project. And, you know, some of your, I was thinking some of your junior listeners might appreciate hearing about the vagaries of academic life and how the real world intervenes even before um, the era of the pandemic. Um, so I had planned to do a comparative study of Islam-based political parties. Um, this was, in the, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, Islam-based political parties that contest general elections and have to court voters, right? They want votes, so they have to court voters, including women voters. So mm -hmm. I had decided that I was going to focus on the Jamaat-e Islami in Bangladesh, and I'd done some work on them before, and Hezbollah in Lebanon. And I even received a very big grant to do this work, and this was in early 2006. Mm -hmm. And then in the summer of 2006, there was a war in Lebanon, and then a few months later, there was a coup in Bangladesh. And both of the parties simply clammed up. They didn't want to talk to researchers from overseas. Um, and, you know, it, 
so basically it, it was doomed and you know I, I did a few interviews but it was clear that I wouldn't be able to um, go very far with this and so that's when a more archival project suddenly looked really really attractive and and doable and I'd done a couple of conference papers around that time um, that I looked at again and like okay so this can be expanded in multiple directions to become a book so that's why this book happened when it did and you know um, it ended up being how it is um, at an intellectual level the two main questions um, that I'd explored in those conference papers I just mentioned had to do first with the double bind so how historically um, I, I wanted to see how historically Muslim writers and activists had negotiated pointing to the very real problems in their communities without colluding with larger political forces that were claiming to save or civilize their societies, that is, without giving fodder to anti-Muslim rhetoric, etc. And then a second very much related question was, who gets to speak for Muslim women? Who gets authorized to speak? And of course, the immediate context for both these questions were the many Muslim and famously ex-Muslim writers who emerged in the years just after 9-11, who spoke out against misogyny in the Muslim world. These writers were quickly embraced and celebrated by the mainstream media and prominent publishers as the real feminists of Islam. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting and struck many of us at the time is that almost without exception, each and every one of them combined their calls for reform in Muslim communities with sort of vigorous support for the U.S. government's domestic and foreign policies at the time in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, and against Muslims in the U.S. So many of uh, our colleagues, um, you know, spoke out against this and challenged them and challenged the image of the oppressed Muslim woman that had become so significant, um, you know, since 9-11. That's when I decided to jump in with my own interventions I, uh, by providing um, a longer historical approach, one that showed how Western ideas about Muslim women had undergone shifts over the centuries. I, in other words, that Muslim women had not always been seen as meek and oppressed and that th this had varied with the larger political and economic context. And second, by exploring also Muslim ideas about Western women and men. And then finally, by telling the story from the vantage point of South Asia and specifically Bengal. So that's how, I guess, you know, a long, long answer to how this book came about the way it did and when it did. And, you know, I have to say, I loved working on this on this project. It took forever because there's so much to read, but it's I really, yeah. you know, felt it was a labor of love. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, like when I was reading this book, I felt that it was a labor of love. Like, yes, it was the details and the, you know, it's so rich in details and the work that you've done and the historical kind of um, periods you've covered. I'm just beyond amazed. And now also to hear that you were really doing another project and perhaps were trained in kind of contemporary stuff and then all of a sudden picked up archival work. I'm just like more intrigued. So like, tell us about that. How was that process? Cause that must've been, I mean, for me, it sounds scary that, you know, kind of I do ethnography and if I were all of a sudden told that I needed to do archival work, like that would perhaps give me pause or concern. But I mean, how did you navigate that? 
So, you know, it was a lot of reading and reading and reading and then um, chasing footnotes, reading between the lines and then cross-checking. Well, so-and-so says this, this is, you know, so um, I think the focus on representations meant that, you know, I, I wasn't, when I read many of these European writers, for example, I was reading more for what it told us about them than about the people they were describing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was... You know, I wasn't trying to verify what really happened in that harem or in that bathhouse. It was more like, how did these people understand where they were? Um, and every time I read something, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd ask, so who was active in this period? What were, uh, what was happening in the world at the time? How do all these different things interact? Um, so it was, it was really a lot of reading and then getting the information that I needed. You know, I, I wouldn't. It's a big book. It was actually 50% longer, but we cut it. Really? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, so it was really about, so, uh, I, you know, I still don't claim to be comprehensive, but it was about sort of tracing this genealogy of representations and activism over time. So constantly, so for the stories, I was able to find, like putting them in their proper context, both of the individuals and of the larger political social economic context in which these things happened, you know, what else was going on? How did that, how might that have affected what they wrote and what they saw or how they saw or how they described what they saw? Um, So some of it was quite easy. And actually I was quite surprised by how much um, of these old, um, of this older writing has been digitized, right? I mean, for all the problems with the, with, certain big corporations, a lot of things have been digitized and are freely available online. So it was a matter of finding them and then reading through them and picking up things that others maybe hadn't been interested in, right? So I'm not going to claim to find um, sort of hidden documents, but it's really rereading things that were sort of out there and present. Um, So many of these were well-known. You know, I reread James Mill and John Stuart Mill, for example. Right. They've been read and analyzed to death, but for other purposes. Um, and then and then we and then, you know, Mary Montague, all of these are well-known figures, but it was read reading them and then putting them in this genealogy. So both placing them in their immediate context, but also in this genealogy and seeing how then the story reads differently when you sort of trace it over this longer uh, historical period. Um, and then for on the so that was the the a lot of the Anglo-American stuff has been digitized. And then on the Bengali side, people were just really helpful. I mean, so many, you know, it's things aren't archived the way you'd like them to. So I would hear about someone, you know, mentioned in one book, but then and I even know that they wrote a book about this trip to whatever, but then it's impossible to find. So, you know, you ask around, you find relatives, surviving relatives who have a copy put away somewhere and, you know, and they make that available. People were very generous also with photographs, which I was able mm-hmm. to include. So, you know, I, I had a lot of help you know, yeah. from everyone. Yeah. It's amazing. I think I, one of the things that I've really appreciated about the book um, is just kind of the, again, as you said, the genealogy that you outlined, but just kind of the, the material that you were able to uncover and the stories that you were able to tell from both the Bengali side and the Anglo yeah. um, Anglo side. It's, it's really fantastic. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I, so I wonder if we could get into it. I mean, you, the book is kind of organized in a chronological way, starts from a historical moment and works its way to the contemporary global context, almost as it were, as it's ending up in the epilogue. Um, so you've given us a sense of some of your main interventions that you're making with, making in the book. So maybe we could start in the in the beginning in chapter one, where you kind of situate us with Ibn Battuta, and you're talking about this earlier history, particularly kind of in the colonial context and, and how um, women were viewed, especially kind of quote unquote women of the East um, or Muslim women in Bengal specifically. So can you say a little bit about uh, what you're doing in that chapter? Sure. Um, so, I mean, the, I guess, let me just back up and just say a little bit about the, the bigger argument the mm-hmm. that, and then come back to chapter one. Um, so the main argument is that, um, is that feminism uh, nowhere has emerged in a vacuum, basically, right? So the overarching argument is that um, feminist movements in the Anglo-American West and in Muslim societies have developed in tandem and not in isolation, and they've helped to construct one another, but in different ways. So, um, so Western ideas about Muslim women have shaped how once uh, feminist or women's rights movements got underway in Europe, they were constantly, they, con- they used the idea of the Muslim woman as a foil against which to demand rights for themselves. So that was there from the very beginning from, you know, Mary Estelle and Catherine McCauley in the, and Ma- Mary Wollstonecraft in the 17th, 18th centuries. Um, and on in different ways. And that, I think, is the crucial part of the historical narrative is that the way they've used the Muslim woman, whether oppressed or otherwise, um, has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And similarly, for the Muslim side of the story, for Bengal specifically, um, which is, of course, more than just Muslim, but um, I'm focusing on the Muslim wo- uh, women, they've had to, uh, um, reformers there have had to articulate their projects and visions for change in the light of Western dominance, at least since the 18th century, Um, right? So it's not that they haven't been able to just have a uh, you know, define define their visions in a free in in a vacuum um, uh, and operate independent uh, independently of Western dominance. First, it was colonialism, and then you know, even after colonialism, different kinds of dominance. So I think that's you know um, the core argument. And so in chapter one, I begin by talking about how many of these ideas. Um, go back. Um, and at some point I thought I would go back to the beginning of Islam and, you know, that just got too complicated. I mean, that, that was really yeah. hard for someone who's not a historian. Um, so starting with the European contact and onwards. Uh, so I wanted to start with Ibn Battuta because I wanted to start with a Muslim figure. You know, I didn't want mm-hmm. the first voice to be um, someone else. And he is from the West, just, you know, a near West, if you will, um, right. as opposite of near East. And um, he comes and he has things to say about Muslim women. And, you know, it, 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 it just shows how everyone comes with their own ideas. So he comes with the idea that, well, Muslim women shouldn't be rulers or Muslim women should cover up more and how these Muslim women, you know, spoke back to him and said, no, this is how I dress basically. And, you know, mm-hmm. don't tell me, but he, he also talks about, women in a way that many other travelers of that time didn't, um, Arab and Muslim travelers. So he was just an interesting figure to start with. And it also um, 
I use him to show that all kinds of people came to Bengal and went from Bengal, right? It, it wasn't this isolated place that from the very beginning, there were people coming and going. Um, so um, in this period, you so you have Ibn Battuta, you have you know the Chinese come through, and then the Portuguese, and you know eventually the Dutch and the English come to Bengal. But always at work is this idea of um, the Muslim woman, and some of it is shaped by earlier travelers who actually, you know, the first European travelers to write about um, Muslim women are the ones who go to the closer east, right, the so-called Near East, the Ottoman Empire, and and the Levant. And it's unclear how much direct interaction early male travelers would have had with women, but they were happy to write about them, of course. Um, But they would say, you know, but what's interesting is that they would come back and in their writings, talk about how they admired these women, right, which is not what you expect um, today. Um, They admired them because they were modest, they weren't, you know, they didn't, uh, spend money on frivolous things and you know they, they they were good wives basically and they would come back and tell English women to emulate them. Mm-hmm. This starts changing in the as we move deeper into the Enlightenment period in Europe where with the focus on freedom, right the, the obsession with freedom and reason, etc, the presumed lack of freedom of women in the East becomes a focal point. So when nobody cared about freedom as freedom, it you know it wasn't an issue, but now it starts becoming an issue. So now suddenly, Muslim women or women of the East generally are no longer different and even worthy of emulation, but different and to be pitied. And then, as I said earlier, by the feminists who um, emerge, you know, proto-feminists who emerge in this time, seventeenth, uh, eighteenth century, these Muslim women become a foil against which to demand rights for English women. I mean, we deserve rights because. Uh, you know, we're not like the women in the Seraglio or in the harem, whatever. Um, we have souls and we we deserve to be given rights. Don't treat us the way you treat them, uh, the way Muslim men treat them. Mm-hmm. And here in, in chapter two, kind of you pick up on particularly the Enlightenment context that you're referring to and kind of the portrayal of women under the Ottoman context, where there's like, you know, the obsession with the bathhouses and things like this. Um you're talking about the writings by men and women in directed towards Muslim women. Um, do you have some examples that maybe you want to like highlight or some things that stuck out to you when you were uh, writing this chapter? I know you talk about Mary uh, Wollstonecraft, uh, Wollstone Stonecraft. I always have a hard time saying her name. <laughs> <laughs> but um, any other examples that you were trying to pick out um, in terms of framing this argument? So um, I guess Mary Montague is well known for people who, um, you know, focus on on that period and or who focus on today and teach about that period, because she, she I mean, she's an interesting character who went to um, to uh, Constantinople as the wife of the British or English ambassador to um, to the Sublime Port, as you know, they they referred to um, the Ottoman Empire. And so she got to travel and she's she's a great character. And people have written about her for many different reasons. You know, English scholars write about her for some things, philosophers write, you know, so she's been approached in many different ways. And certainly she's been approached for her writings about Muslim women. So um, uh, so, so what she, you know, she goes to the bathhouse and this is very famous incident that's been much written about where she 
she's very clear, sorry, um, in her writing that, you know, all these men have come to and claim to speak about what happens inside a harem, but how could these men have had, these European men have had access? She's the one who will finally reveal what what's um, what happens in there, because as a woman, she really will have access. Uh, and we should mention, of course, as an elite woman, a member of the diplomatic corps, right. whatever, right? right? She has the right connections. Um, right. So she has access. And what's interesting is that she does say that, of course, not surprisingly, they're not all lying around waiting to be serviced or to service men. You know, they're doing mm-hmm. like very mundane things. Um, so that's happening. And then she also describes this incident where the women um, in the Ottoman bathhouse express horror at seeing her corset. And they say, oh, is this a contraption that your husband has um, locked you up inside? Right, right. Uh, so, so, so what's interesting about that, of course, is that it then makes her think. And that's, you know, part of my play on, 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 with, in the title, that it makes her sort of pause and think about, oh, you know, I never thought about that. I'm, I'm looking at how they dress and how they're, they're comfortable taking things off. And it's so easy for them to take their clothes off to bathe. And here I am in my contraption. Um, so some scholars have said she that Montague says she does not take off her corset because it's so complicated. And what these scholars have said is, well, you know, would she admit that she took off her corset in public? And uh, so we don't, but it's not even relevant to the story. It's more that she said that she reflected on the situation of women uh, back home. So, so this story is very well known, but what makes it interesting to me is that when you put it in this genealogy, you see how there are efforts by people like Montague to challenge the story that was circulating about Muslim women, that they are oppressed in harems and, and seraglios, etc. But the, the main story, the hegemonic story, is so hegemonic and powerful that her narrative didn't change, you know, didn't, couldn't challenge it. So I, throughout the periods I look at, I find these voices of people who do pause and think and, you know, basically look at a mirror in a sense. The other society is like a mirror on their own society and think about what they've seen back home, whether it's sexism or racism, whatever, and mm-hmm. um, and try to challenge the main narrative. But then, you know, they're up against a great deal and it's hard to challenge. So the mainstream narrative um, tends to continue. Mm-hmm. And another, I think, a great example of this kind of encounter that you're trying to capture is also with um, the wives of missionaries or like priests and also single women who were uh, went uh, to serve in missionary work under the British Empire or whatnot. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do in terms of highlighting these encounters as well? And of course, here the role of Christianity and the gospel and all that stuff, but it also presented this other opportunity for um, wives of priests or uh, missionaries to meet um, you know, the folks that they were trying to convert. Yeah, the um, one character who comes to mind now is Helen McKenzie mm-hmm. in India. She's the wife of Colin McKenzie. And they were there as sort of missionary evangelicals in the British army. Mm-hmm. But so, she, you know, they see it as their job to go into homes because that's where they can reach women and educate them and in the process show them you know give them the good news and and convert them hopefully and get them thinking about things other than islam and she had these interesting um comments in her um memoir of her time and of her six years in india where she's surprised that 
you know, a Muslim man would, I don't know, tend to his wife, for example, right? And then, um, what else? yeah, so there are examples like that where, you know, these are passing comments that show you that they're questioning their own preconceived notions, not necessarily enough to change their overall ideas, but the fact that, you know, these encounters sort of push them in certain directions, I think is really um, interesting. So she's the missionary uh, person I uh, I remember best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you go on also. I think one of the things that I've also really appreciated about the book was, um, you know, not only the writings of um, the Anglo Western women and people that you're capturing in terms of how they viewed the other, but also the writings of you know Muslim women or Bengali women. Um, in terms of how they were advocating for education or their own experiences traveling. Um, did you want to talk about um, maybe any of them? I know um, I immediately to mind and brought, think of Begum Rukhaya Hussein, but then there's many others that you talk about in, in, in some of the middle chapters in terms of the advocacy work or, you know, the feminism that they were advocating for, quote unquote. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so some of them, um, so... Begum Rokia Hussein is a huge figure in uh, Bengal today and throughout the subcontinent and, you know, increasingly even in the Muslim world because she wrote very clearly, forcefully, and she wrote this very famous short story in English, um, which is, of course, also a reflection of the colonial context, right, that she right. learned English and did this. So right. um, so she was, you know, she's been introduced, she's in feminist anthologies and in, in um in, available in, in in the West and you know in Europe and and the U.S. She's so she's widely read, and I wanted to keep her there, of course, because she's so important. But also bring in other women writers who haven't received as much attention. So um, one of them is Faizun Nessa um, Nawab Faizun Nessa, who is sort of a, of an earlier generation. She um, she was the daughter of a you know big landlord. Um, Zamindar, and she um, she founded a school, and she wrote this book that my colleague Faiza Hassan at, at uh, in Florida has uh, translated and annotated, um, which is you know this sort of love story with you know very candid depictions of women's sexual desire. I mean, this is eighteen seventies um, right. when she did this, and you know she played with form and structure, and you know did all kinds of really interesting things um so she she wrote then and she you know she pushed back the apparently the colonial authorities wanted to declare her a begum for her service to her community and she said you know i'm already a begum i don't need that so then they gave her the title nawab and you already had the female nawabs no nawabs of bhopal at the mm. time so she said you know at least make me a nawab but so what's so she's an interesting figure who emerged in this early context, and you know she reflects on her father's uh, relationship to colonial power, and mm-hmm. so so they're operating in that context. Um, another one is Karimunnesa, who is Begum Rukhaya's mm-hmm. older sister, and her great 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 granddaughter. Mm-hmm. I forget how many greats um, shared that photograph with me mm-hmm. uh, of her in the book, right? So so you know, just to give an example of the kind of help and generosity I, I was able to experience. So she 
um, she was much older than uh, than Rokia, but she, she you know she supported Rokia's efforts to get educated, and and even though she was married and left home early, but Rokia always recognized her sister's contributions. And Karim Nessa was herself a poet who uh, a poet and who wrote. Uh, whose book uh, Roque helped to publish afterwards. But, and then there's Masuda Rahman, for example, who is, I think, less well-known, um, but she wrote very passionately. And I think she was, uh, she and Roque were very um, direct about talking about the freedom of women, but seeing it as connected to the freedom of the country, right? They're writing mm-hmm. in a colonial context. And for them, these were intertwined. Um, mm-hmm. Roquet maybe less so because she wanted to start a school and she want, needed colonial funding um, mm-hmm. for the school to work, right? So there are these practical, pragmatic concerns that also affected how they, you know, what they vocalized, at least in writing. I also use the stories of these women to show how, they, um, <coughs> excuse me, how they also had very supportive male relatives. I, th- you know, I feel we don't hear enough about those stories. I mean, it goes with the trope of the oppressed Muslim woman, right? The, the oppressive Muslim man. And yet all these women benefited from, you know, a father or a husband or a brother who pushed them to, who helped them. Um, get their education or to publish in magazines or started magazines for just for women. So I think mm-hmm. that is also part of the story that I tried to trace um, throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm also wondering how, and you mentioned this in the book, how the partition moment and the post-partition moment also influence a lot of kind of the activism and work that Bengali women and other um, women were doing. And so how did it influence the understanding? You alluded to how for uh, for some of the folks you're engaging with, it was uh, freedom was tied to the political or the you know local context. So can you say a little bit more about that, especially kind of thinking in the post-partition context um, of Bangladesh, perhaps even? So you mean 47 and then 71? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the period after between 47 and 71 when uh, Bangladesh was East Pakistan is interesting because until just recently, you know, I, like five to seven years, maybe 10 years, it hadn't received that much attention for nationalist reasons and just linguistics. Um, and um, because so when Pakistanis tell the story of Pakistan, they sort of mention that East Pakistan is gone and because the language is different, it it's not part of the research agenda, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, so the story of Pakistan doesn't include East Pakistan and the story of Bangladesh doesn't, you know, they haven't wanted to talk about the East Pakistan period because, right. you know, it's just a continuation of the colonial period. People have mm-hmm. talked about how... Um, independence in August doesn't get uh, the part, you know, the moment of partition and independence in August doesn't get celebrated in Bangladesh because independence from Pakistan in 71 sort of trumps that. Um, But, you know, 47 was a huge moment. And so for the purposes of the activists, it becomes, it's what I find is a lot of celebration at the time of being an independent state. So people are, like, many are 
pleased that now we're operating and it's a sovereign nation. We're going abroad and, and, you know, raising our heads up high as members of a sovereign nation. Over time, the nationalist, the Bengali nationalism emerges, right, in response to certain Pakistani policies. Um, But in the first few years, I mean, people are celebrating being part of this um, post-colonial state. So activism Mm -hmm. takes different forms. They work together. East East Pakistani activists work with West Pakistani activists on different issues, such as um, to reform uh, family law, um, etc. But, you know, over time, these fissures appear, and then the the two end up taking um, separate paths. And then after 71, I talk about how initially it's all about, you know, rehabilitating the country, the women, the, the, the women who were who experienced sexual violence during the war. So that's a priority. And then 71 is the war, and then there's a flood and a famine, right? So it's like one crisis after another. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. Uh, work that activists pour into dealing with those immediate crises. Um, and then over time, of course, you know, they turn their attention to other issues um, as, as they can. And then throughout, I'm interested in how they work with and often clash with um, international activists, right? So whether it's NGOs later or the clashes of the United Nations that happen. Um, so, so, so the seventies are interesting because seventy-one you have independence in Bangladesh, and then seventy-five to eighty-five is the UN decade for women. So there are all these UN conferences happening, and you know, on until ninety-five. So, so. Um, women from Bangladesh go and encounter women from other parts of the world and, and form new organizations. So it's very real examples of transnational clashes and um, cooperation and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And that chapter seven on encounters in global feminism, especially as you mentioned, non-governmental organizations like the United Nations was so fascinating because again, I think, um, you know, you're having this, these stereotypical um, inv- um, obsessions. I don't know if that's the right word yeah. to use with things like uh, polygamy, uh, female genital mutilation, um, whereas Muslim women who are present, such as um, um, some of the women you're highlighting, are really actively trying to say, no, there, there are these other issues that we need to talk about and address, yeah. right? So this constant like dissonance that you've been uh, documenting throughout history is also kind of emerging again in this particular moment um, as well. Um, I think, let's see. So by the time I move into the seventies and eighties, the Bangladesh part is there, but it's also because there's more networking and more connections. It's more about Mm -hmm. Muslim women. Generally, I keep some Bangladesh characters there. So, um, so I, I talk about how, you know, with the oil shock of the early seventies and then the Iranian revolution, Islam suddenly starts Right. looking different um, to many people. Um, and uh, sh- just to step back a bit, right, what the longer historical perspective shows is, right, you have the figure of the Muslim woman in the sort of 18th, 19th century, and you have it again after 9-11. But in the early Cold War decades, so I don't know, 50s, 60s, 70s, the Muslim woman sort of recedes into the background. She's not... You know, of course, women in in certain countries are identified as being Muslim, but being Muslim isn't seen as being right. the problem, right? So they're all equally 
you know, backward, in need of modernization, in need of development. But, you know, being a Muslim woman is no different from being a poor non-Muslim woman in the global, in the third world, right? The, that would be the terminology of the time. So being Muslim isn't seen as being particularly um, mm. deficient, right? The way we think about it today. So so you have that period. And then in the late, uh, starting in the 80s, being Muslim because of the Iranian revolution and, you know, control over oil um, starts to be, it starts to be seen as a problem. So now, so because being Muslim is a problem now, suddenly Muslim women are to be pitied again, you know, as like, as being specially oppressed compared and, you know, and maybe beyond repair, they cannot be brought forward through modernization theory, et cetera. So that starts changing then. And then the focus is on, you know, what makes the Muslim women so specially different. So that's, you know, the focus on um, FGM, which is associated with um, being Muslim, even though, um, you know, it's practiced in other places, it's practiced by non-Muslims and it's not practiced by all Muslims. Um, and, and, and you see this in the way uh, certain publications frame the right. topic, right? So they'll say, we're not really talking about Muslims, but then it's clear if you keep reading that right. that's all they mean. So there's a focus on, 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 on that. There's a focus about oppression of Muslims in other ways. So polygamy, FGM, all of these issues um, start getting special attention starting in the 80s. And then um, you have the case of um, in, in the... In the 1990s, when the Taliban takes over, the feminist majority in the U.S., for example, uh, takes up the cause of of uh, women in, Af- in Afghanistan, and then you know supports the the invasion after 9/11. So um, there are all these moments when being Muslim suddenly becomes um, worthy of special interest and and need to intervene in a way that hadn't been the case in the 50s, mm-hmm. 60s, 70s. And I think a lot of this really comes together in chapter eight, where you discuss the um, the figure of Tislima Nasreen, or quote unquote, um, yeah. female Rashti, and in, in kind of in conversation with figures such as Irshad Manji or Ayn Hirshi Ali. And I think the crux of some of the arguments you're making come together at this moment. So can you say a little bit about who Tislima Nasreen is and perhaps what you're trying to get at in this kind of final substantive chapter? Yeah. Um, so Taslima Nasreen is um, she. She worked as a physician, but she was best known for a column she wrote in in a local weekly. Um, and you know, she she was celebrated and really uh, embraced by many young women and other readers because she brought attention to um, to issues that others other writers, women or men were willing to write about, you know, being harassed on the street and how painful that could be, especially. Uh, so she, she, she drew attention to many of these things. So all that was fine. You know, some people would say, oh, how can you write about sex in a newspaper? But, you know, we can set those concerns aside. But that's what she was doing. She was writing openly and candidly about issues that others hadn't been writing about. And then mm-hmm. Babri Masjid happens, right? In December 1992 in India. And then there's a backlash against Hindus in Bangladesh. And she writes a very sh- quick, short really quick, I think, I mean, quickly, a novel about attacks on Hindus in Bangladesh. 
uh, you know, the usual suspects say, oh, how can you say these things? You're painting the country in a negative light. But there were attacks and she wrote about it. And that part is fine. But then she gives an interview about it in in India, where she also, you know, where um, where she where she talks about how the Quran needs to be revised. And that upsets many more people. Also upsetting is that the BJP picks up her novel and you know publishes cheap copies and circulates it all over India to say you know to talk about Hindu uh, the oppression of Hindus in Bangladesh. So all these things basically upset a lot of people. Uh, what um, so this is ninety two ninety three. Remember Salman Rushdie, Salman Rushdie and Satanic Verses had. Uh, exploded 89 or so, right? So Rushdie was in hiding at the time all this is happening. Um, organizations, you know, international pen and uh, I think it's, inter- you know, um, inter- writers from, from the West sort of then um, create an aura around her that she needs to be saved because she's essentially the a female Rushdie. So scholars and you know observers have pointed out many other people were threatened by Islamists. Oh, an Islamic group in uh, Islamist group in Silet and in, in a part of Bangladesh put this um, prize on her head, um, you know, because she has offended Islam. So th- the point is that it played out differently in her case because of the moment in which her story emerged. Um, others had, you know, written things that had offended various Islamists or, you know, or conservative thinkers, but, you know, they had continued and death threats had been issued, but they'd continued their work without going into hiding or escaping to the West and whatnot. But in her case, the timing, because it was just after Rushdie, this is also, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where Islam was already becoming this, this problem to be dealt with. Um, it becomes a much bigger issue and she has to go into hiding. Local feminists help her um, and, and lawyers work to have her case uh, addressed in court properly. But, you know, uh, in the end, she decides to leave the country um, and and is uh, basically smuggled out. I think what, what upset local feminists about her and has upset local feminists in say, Afghanistan and other parts of the world about people like uh, Irshad Manjian and Hirsi Ali is that they have, all three of them have portrayed themselves as being, you know, the spokeswomen for what happens uh, for um, Muslim women in the world, or at least in their societies. I think, you know, some have grander claims than others, um, which means that they have, which suggests that they have, uh, no grasp of the history of activism and thinking and women's rights thinking and ideas in in these societies to say that you know no one did anything until I came and and spoke up right. about these things. So maybe my book is we definitely need to pick up and you know, fill in those stories. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Like they're gonna do that. Um, <laughs> Um, so, so I think that's the claim that you know, sort of, it's it's uh, claims like that that brings them together. Um, but you know, they also differ in in, in in an important way, which I talk about. Um, you know, the context in which uh, I started thinking about the book is when these books were coming out, and they were um, like they were uh, supporting. Um, so 
the US-based writers like Irshad Manji, Ayan Hirsi Ali, and several others who emerged after 9-11 claimed to speak on behalf of all Muslim women and supported things like the War on Terror or the Patriot Act and you know the, the internment and the rounding up of Muslim men in this country. All these policies they they supported because you know they felt Islam was beyond repair and this is what we need to do and we need to go into these countries and root out um, the, the, the bad guys. Um, Taslima Nasreen is interesting is because she, you know, she wasn't in the U.S., I think, for much of that, but also she, she didn't invest in the U.S. Um, invasions and occupations the way the others did. I mean, she's also a very different character. She wasn't writing in English. She's not, you know, I talk about how she's not as glamorous and, you know, outspoken as the others. I mean, she didn't become famous until much later in her career, whereas the others, you know, burst into um, uh, prominence immediately soon after 9-11 with these very out there um, with their writing and, and speaking engagements. So it's interesting to think about the differences even within this group of um, figures who, that emerged in, um, you know, soon after 9-11. I mean, there's just so many amazing aspects of this book that we obviously haven't had time to cover in this short podcast conversation. I wonder, um, you know, stepping back a little bit, what would you hope the readers or perhaps even the listeners who are hearing about the book for the first time to really take away from, uh, from, from this project? I like that. Thank you. Um, I think that our histories are interconnected, right? At a very basic, but also important level. Um, it's, um, I think I say in the yeah I say in the introduction to the book right there are these stories told about how um, about the stories about feminism. So one is that it emerged in the West and then it was exported and adapted mm-hmm. in the rest of the world, and then you have the response in the other countries, so say Muslim countries, which is that no no we have either that feminism is indeed as the Western feminists say, a Western export, and there's no room for that here. Or the version that, no, we have our own version of feminism. And what I want to push for is that, well, I mean, there are elements of truth in both of these, but they're connected, right? So feminism in the West emerged in relation to colonial projects and um, and ideas about Muslim women, but also other kinds of women, right? My focus is on Muslim women in the book, you know, also enslaved women from from the African continent and et cetera. So there are many stories to be told here, but my focus is on Muslim women. But of course, they're also intertwined because Muslim women were seen as enslaved in their harems. So it's interesting to, to, to make those connections, um, that that part is connected and that ideas about feminism in the Muslim world and other parts of the colonized world necessarily had to emerge in the context of Western global power, right? So there's no point saying that, you know, it emerged, you know, free floating in these contexts. They had to contend with Western representations of themselves, right? How the West talked about Muslim women affected how Muslim women had to think about their own visions and projects, um, and 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 so necessarily ideas about feminism in much of the rest of the world including in muslim context 
were, were necessarily intertwined with idea, you know, with opposition. So opposition to male dominance was intertwined with uh, with uh, uh, sort of um, challenges to colonial dominance, to occupation, to invasion, to racism. So all of these things had to be intertwined, and so then, then and then it comes comes out so clearly in those first UN conferences where people like Betty Friedan would come back and say, they don't even know what women's rights are. They were talking about occupation and Zionism and, and racism, but, you know, we need to focus on women's issues. So of course it's only when you're, you know, white women, upper class or upper middle class white women in the West, do you have the privilege of sort of removing everything and just focusing on whatever you think are women's issues, right? You don't have to think about racism, et cetera, in the same way. Um, your country is the one that's, uh, that has the power, global power at the moment or the British in an earlier period. So you can think about something called women's issues, but for everyone else, it's all intertwined. Um, so I think, yeah, that would be the more general message, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's just so important. And, you know, the idea of the privilege of being able to think of a single issue at any yeah. moment, as opposed to the fact that there's so many overlapping issues that is particularly women um, of color, um, particular socioeconomic exactly. classes they're contending with. Yeah. Um, before we conclude, I mean, I want to make a note of the beautiful cover. And I don't know if you wanted to say anything about uh, the image or the art, art that's been selected. Yes. Oh, I'd love to. Um, yeah. And, so, and can I just read the, the inscription that's on it with the, a book jacket and for the cover illustration? I don't know do, if you want to do please that. Please do. Um, I think because I think it's just in light of what you've said and what the theme of, of what you do in the book. I just think. Yeah, just yeah, no, no, exactly. Please go ahead. Yeah. It says, quote unquote, when I see things through my heart, uh, when I have a conversation with another woman or when I listen to someone's stories, I sometimes find the reflection of my own mind in that mind. We are as different as we live our lives, but we always find some similar issues or stories that are never spoken out over, ever. All of a sudden, when we find it, find it is her own story, apparently expressed by the person she is listening to. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so thank you. Um, I think I came up with my book title and then came across the sculpture. Um, yeah. so it's a sculpture, which, and, 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 and you know, it was perfect. It was just yeah. so perfect. So the sculpture, for those of you who haven't seen it, is um, by a Bangladeshi woman sculptor, artist, called Tayeba Begum Lippi. And it's, uh, I think it's fairly small. I forget the exact dimensions, but it's, you know, two women looking at one another. They seem to be wearing Western clothing. You know, it looks like a blazer or a jacket, but not necessarily. We don't actually know. So it's and and it's made up of tiny razors or mirrors, right? And and the name of her sculpture is mirror. So you have these two women looking at one another and reflecting off one another, which is exactly how I envision my stories um, throughout the book. It's just it's just so the piece is stunning, but I think it complements what the work that you're trying to do in this book is just perfect. It's Thank amazing. you. Yeah, I couldn't um, not say anything about it because I've been <laughs> looking at it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful for your time, and I guess before I let you go, I mean, first of all, congratulations on this huge project that you've just completed, and Thank I know you. we're all trying to survive in our own various ways. But I wonder if there are things that you know you're slowly working on aside from you know resting and celebrating this book at the moment. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, so I, um, so the period that 
I became most fascinated with. I mean, it was all really interesting, but you know, I know I'm not going to go back and work on, I don't know, 18th or 19th century. I'm, I'm not really right. a historian of that period, but I am fascinated with the East Pakistan period because that's where I think I had to do the most digging and which is surprising because, you know, it's recent compared to a lot of the earlier um, periods. So, because, you know, for the reasons I mentioned before, there has been relatively little work on the East Pakistan period because of issues of nationalism and nationalist historiography on both the Pakistan and Bangladesh side. So many more of my colleagues are working on this period now from different angles. And I want to go back to that period um, to look at how women organized, still interested in, you know, the intersectional transnational context and less maybe necessarily on Muslim women, even though, you know, East Pakistan is a Muslim majority context, but how women came together um, in this period to organize for, you know, on different issues, including legal reform and others, and then moving into the nationalist moment <coughs> in the late 60s, um, you know, often working with West Pakistani activists, often without. So that's what I want to um focus on more and, and trace this history probably also in you know past 1971 but to look at how they negotiated you know their identities as Bengali Pakistani Bangladeshi third world secular religious Muslim and how you know at different moments and how transnational interactions and interventions shape their priorities at different times so um, I have a couple of articles out um, are coming out soon on this. So I think that's what's going to occupy me um, moving on. And then, you know, I want to go back to do some more work, which I did before um, on uh, faith-based activism. And I had some, I'd, I'd done work on the Jamaat-e Islami uh, for my uh, previous book. And I, I might go back to that. I haven't, you know, <laughs> depends on what I can access and who's willing to talk. Um, but uh, you know, get back to some interviews and uh, ethnography at some point. Oh, that's uh, both sound fantastic, and it sounds thank like both can be very busy for a while. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, again, thank you so much for your time and for sharing it with us and talking about this fantastic book that just came out. So, congratulations again, and I hope we can connect soon another time. Thank you so much. These are great questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. And that was my conversation with Dr. Elora Shahabuddin um, about her new book, Sisters in the Mirror, A History of Muslim Women and the Global Politics of Feminism. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you will join me again next time. Until then, stay well and take good care.